people will die because of this. I, I don't know how to say it any more clearly. I've worked in a clinic. That will happen. Women go to enormous, dangerous lengths when they feel cornered, trapped by a pregnancy. This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsu Politics. Thank you for being here with us today and for being with us all week this week as we've launched our new book into the world. We so appreciate all of you. Today we are going to talk about the leaked Supreme Court opinion and the strong possibility that Roe versus Wade will be overturned. And then we'll talk about efforts to build real support systems around families with Reshma Saujani, founder of the Marshall Plan for Moms. And then because it is important for all of us to contain multitudes, we always end our show with a conversation that's outside of politics. And today we're going to chat a little bit about the Met Gala and Kim Mm -hmm. and Pete Mm -hmm. and the dress and all of that unfolding at the same time as the Supreme Court news, which was a real scene. Real scene. Now, that now what is out in the world? What we need is reviews, you guys. So if you're on Goodreads or Amazon or, you know, wherever else you read and post reviews, you all understand the assignment and reviewed. I think you're wrong, but I'm listening and did an absolutely incredible job. So if you like this book and are enjoying it, it will help us so much if you share that rating and or review with other readers. Now, before we head into our conversation about the leaked Supreme Court document, we're going to share some ads. And I'm saying that explicitly because my seven-year-old son, Felix, has started listening to our podcast, you guys. And he had a listener note for us. He said, you need to tell people when the ads are coming. It's stressful. It was a really good note. And we it's take a good it to heart. note. So we're going to have a quick ad break here, and then we'll be back to talk about the Supreme Court. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. 
free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. As everyone knows by now, Politico first shared a leaked draft of a Supreme Court opinion by Justice Alito that seemed to be joined by Justices Thomas, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. Just a first draft, explicitly marked a first draft from February, that in no uncertain terms Mm -hmm. and with a real enthusiasm overturns Roe versus Wade. And there are many dimensions to this conversation. I am certain we will not scratch the surface of even 25% of the dimensions of this conversation. Sarah, knowing that there are people listening who have heard us talk about abortion over the past almost seven years many times, and also people who are hearing us talk about it for the first time, I wondered if we might give an abbreviated version of how each of us feel about this topic before we discuss the layers of this this newest development. Of course. Well, I am pretty devotedly pro-choice. My first job out of college was at Planned Parenthood. I believe it is a tough issue for individuals, but I think that's where the decision should remain. I am a, a woman of faith. <laughs> I do fall in the Barbara Bush category, I believe life begins with breath. There's an old episode where we talk about Barbara Bush's fascinating thoughts on the topic of abortion through the lens of someone who who buried a child, but I won't get into that here. I do understand that I am more radically pro-choice than most Americans, I would say. I'm comfortable with that position, but I think it's always really important to like sort of talk about where you fall policy-wise. And where you fall sort of ethically, because I think sometimes those conversation gets mixed. Those those two things get mixed up in really toxic ways when we talk about abortion. And so policy wise, I'm pretty radically pro-choice and ethically, um, I'm willing to have a more curious and complex conversation about it. There's not a ton of daylight between us on this issue, except that I am um, probably more uncomfortable with it than you are, Sarah. Uncomfortable discussing the issue in a variety of ways, uh, not just with the ethical calculation. I have really been thinking about the ethical calculation, um, and I use ethic differently than faith, right? I mm-hmm. I am not 
trying to have a public discussion about my religious views on abortion, because honestly, and I am grateful for this, I have not spent my life in churches that spend much time thinking or talking about abortion. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just... It's just not been a central part of my uh, faith journey, and I am grateful for that. So ethically, you know, I think it is really difficult, and I think that there is a societal function, a collective function in working out the ethics around it, that it's not just an individual decision. But legally, Mm. I have become much more comfortable saying, no, I, I don't think the government has a role in making this decision. I think there is a societal function, but not a governmental function. Mm. And I have become more convinced of that by listening to physicians. Yeah. And understanding all of the ways in which abortion care is a form of care, that we aren't just talking about one type of situation. We aren't often talking about something that feels like a real choice. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the language around this debate has hardened in ways that don't match the reality. And learning more from care providers has made me much more comfortable saying, no, I, I don't think there's a governmental role here. I think there are roles of licensing authorities that in the medical profession, there are really needed ways to ensure that this is done ethically, carefully, safely, effectively. But I have shifted to be probably more extreme than most Americans in my views on what legally should be regulated around abortion because of what we do and the exposure that we have to medical professionals who are willing to share in a lot of detail what walks into their offices and what their options are. Beth, you spent a lot of time with Justice Alito's opinion that was leaked. Do you find that complexity contained within his opinion? I do not. Mm. I think Justice Alito works really hard in this opinion to not engage that complexity. I think that's his point. I think what Justice Alito might say, were he here with us, giving the most grace and benefit of the doubt that I possibly can. I think what Justice Alito might say is everything that you just articulated is why this belongs to people who are accountable to the public through elections. That that is why this is a legislative function, not a judicial one. And it is a very generous way to describe parts of the country. (laughs) And that it is why it belongs to the most responsive legislature, that the state legislatures should be best positioned to wade into those complex waters that we just described. Now, I don't. As, as you read on in the opinion, right, and you see some of the language that he uses and some of how he gets there, I don't for a second believe that Justice Alito would be comfortable with an outcome where 50 of the United States uh, decided that abortion should be legal in all circumstances. And I think Justice Alito would find something in the Constitution to prevent that outcome for those cases to come to the court in a different posture. Yep. So I, it's not that I think he's agendaless, but I also think it's important to say what the opinion says and to be really clear about the impact of the opinion, that were this opinion to be finalized in its current form and become the law of the land, then what state law has in place would be governing people's options for abortion care. And that means that in some states, absolutely nothing would change. 
And in some states, abortion would be criminalized almost immediately. And a lot of other state legislatures would be racing to develop their preferred policy around this issue. Can we talk a little bit about, before we get into the the deeper complexity of this, particularly surrounding the impact on abortion, can we talk a little bit about the court itself Mm -hmm. and all the um, hand-wringing about the leak and the investigation around the leak? I don't really care about the leak. That's my... I feel I kind of feel bad articulating it that way, but that is how I feel. Can you say more about that? I think what bothers me, like what really bothered me about Justice Roberts' articulation and his statement, the sense of like, this is an attack on the court. This undermines the court's integrity. I, there's a part of me that wants to be like, if you think this is your biggest problem, the leak itself We need to have a conversation. And I think what really bothers me about the framing around the leak and the investigating the leak and we had to figure out the leak is it's like the underlying assumption is the only way to protect the integrity of the court is to keep it the same as it was, to go back. And I just want to go, guys, that's not how things work. I do want to protect the integrity of the court. I think the only way to do that is to go forward into the future and enact some changes on the court. Because what this leak tells us is not that there's like some like some small fix that'll get it. It tells us that it's broken. It's broken. So I guess it's not really true that I don't care. Um, I do care. But I think it reflects something fundamentally broken about the court and people's perception of the institution. And so I think it's going to take some very fundamental changes to regain that trust among the American population. So I really enjoy uh, Supreme Court jurisprudence, which is a weird sentence, but I just do. I like to read Supreme Court cases. I like to talk about Supreme Court cases. I like to think about the way this body works and what it represents and how we interpret what these nine folks do and how essential what these nine folks do is to a functioning democracy If you remember back during the days of the first impeachment of Donald Trump, there was a lot of discussion about corruption in Ukraine. And so much of what our diplomats testified to about their work in Ukraine was about trying to establish a judiciary uh, that is a real independent judiciary. It's impossible to overstate the importance of a real independent judiciary if you want to create democratic governance. And so I have been annoyed a little bit by the the leak doesn't matter dialogue because I do think the leak matters, not as an individual act of betrayal, So Mm -hmm. I'm glad I asked Mm -hmm. you to say more because I would have disagreed with you from the outset. But then when I heard your why, I agree with a lot of your why. I think the leak is representative of a pattern where this institution is losing the credibility. It's losing our confidence in it as an independent body that should have the authority that it has in our system. And I think that's worth a lot of conversation. And I think what the conversation, the reason the conversation bothers me is because people act like we the people doesn't 
apply to the judiciary branch? Like, there's this sense of like, but it's judges and they're neutral and that's what does it. You guys know, like, they never have been and they never will be because they're human beings and human beings aren't neutral. They do their best. They do their best. But there's a lot of structure that is empowered by us that matters to that. And that structure is not functioning. And so we're going to have to think through, like, it's not this static thing. It's like people think it's set in stone and then we're done. We just got to get back to that stone. No, that's not. No, uh, -uh. it's not working. We don't have trust in it. This is just one more reflection of that. And I have respect for Justice Roberts, and I think he cares about the court. And but I just kind of want to be like, let go, let go. Stop that death grip. You're not getting us anywhere. Can you not see it's getting worse? Like, let go. Let's 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 follow this tide. And try to find and try to like anchor somewhere different because you're just get you're holding on to this one rock and it's just the water is sweeping over you and about to drown you and the court. And I need you to let go so we can float downstream and find something different. I've been thinking about this a lot, Sarah, because I feel the same way in, in many respects. And I also don't have a good idea for him. Oh, I have so many ideas. For him, for him as an individual, you have so many mm -hmm. ideas. What are those ideas? I want to know that. I'm I'm genuinely curious because I look at his position. I looked at his statement. I wanted him to say something. And then he did. And and then I was like, not that. That's not what I wanted <laughs> you to say or how I wanted you to say it. And so, but then I've been thinking about it. And I do think this is really hard. Even what he said is so problematic we're going to investigate this. Who is the Department of Justice? You're not going to let the right. Department of Justice come in and pilfer through judges' papers and email correspondence. I mean, how are you going to investigate it? And what does that mean? And what are you saying when you say there's going to be investigation? You're in this body where every word, every comma matters. So what does this mean? I think what I wanted from him, but I'm really curious to hear your thoughts, is some kind of statement about how he understands that both the way people are hearing this and what they're hearing is a very big deal. And I think that's really all I needed. It's almost like what I said, and here it is again about the slap at the Oscars. I yes. just wanted somebody to come out and say, whoa, what a thing this is. And, mm. and we understand that. And then just leave it there for a minute. I don't need to go guns blazing against whomever it was took this to the press, and I really don't need everybody doing true crime podcasts via Twitter about who it might have been. I think that's so damaging and so dangerous that we are not appreciating the stakes around it. But anyway, I'm, I've talked too much. What are what are your ideas for Justice Roberts as an individual in this situation? I mean, if I was Justice Roberts, which I am not, we are very different. I would say we, the court has a problem. I would like renewed focus on the commission the bipartisan commission's reforms. I'd like to take those suggested reforms that they've released inside the court and share some of our thoughts and opinions on those, or let's inside the entire federal judiciary. Maybe that's the next step of the process so that we can keep moving along this road to real reform. That's what I would have said. Yeah, I think that's a good answer. I think that a lot of people politically would sit, would hear that and go, oh, court packing. And be done. But they've suggested so many other things. They have. You know, yeah. it's like it's not just court packing. There's like so many interest. Listen, you know, my favorite one is just they don't get clerks anymore. Mm -hmm. You got to do it yourself, friends. Uh, I really think that would get us there so quickly. <laughs> so quickly. 
likely yeah. in terms where where it's guaranteed yes, that every president will have so many tenure. nominations and there's more predictability and pattern to it. I mean, I think there are a lot of good ideas floating around out there. Okay, so we agree that the leak matters, but not as a, a crime by one person who was attempting to sway this one way or the other. And by the way, I've read a lot of those theories. They all seem plausible to me. Yeah, I'm very persuaded by both. It was trying to persuade <laughs> justices not to vote for it and that it was locking them down. Both time, I yeah. read both ones and I'm like, oh, no, I think both are right. Yeah. But can they both be right? <laughs> now, I, I will say I agree that if one of the justices did this, I think that is an impeachable issue. Oh, I do. Okay. I do think that this was a betrayal of the court and its processes and that it wasn't OK. So let me be clear about that. I just don't. That is not the most significant piece as a citizen for me to spend my time considering. Yeah. So practical impact of the decision. Is that where you want to go next? Maybe like what if this is the decision? Then what happens? Yeah, I think it's just really important to not think we're going to go back to the 1970s. That does not mean that I don't think women's lives. I I mean, I said this on our, our morning news brief that we shared with everyone. People will die because of this. There's just no, I I don't know how to say it any more clearly. And I can't predict the future, but I can tell you with 100% certainty that will happen. I've worked in a clinic. That will happen. Women go to enormous, dangerous lengths when they feel cornered, trapped by a pregnancy. And men will kill women. Yes. Like there will be the number one cause of death for pregnant women is murder. Yeah. (laughs) Just that's look it up. That's just a statistic. So that is the reality. And there are circumstances that have changed. I think the presence of mifepristone and medical abortion, I think that's just going to be another legal challenge. I think it's going to be a hot mess. But you can get that illegally whenever you want. So. Um, but you should be under a doctor's care with that medication. Yeah, and that's that's why it's dangerous. It's scary because I worry that as that becomes more prevalent, so will lacing that with dangerous substances. I mean, there's there's a reason that you need to be under a doctor's care and get right. it from a reputable source. And I, I mean, I read, you know, a lot of articles about this. And I thought one of the best quotes was a post-Roe United States isn't one in which abortion isn't legal at all. It's one in which there's tremendous inequality in abortion access. Now, the problem with that quote is there is always already tremendous inequality in abortion access. Already true. So, I I mean, and I think that's it, right? This is just, it's like, it's like the COVID of reproductive rights. Like if this happens, it's just going to accelerate all the trends. There will be more medical abortion. There will be more illegal medical abortion. There will be like more inequality in access. There will be more access in places that already have access. Like that's, it's just going to be an, an like a fire, like just an accelerant, right? And I think the sort of political reality of that will make it even more unavoidable, right? Because you're going to start getting stories. I mean, you already have some. I think there's a woman in Texas that has been charged. And so I just think you're going to, it's just going to push it all further, faster, and more to the front of the public consciousness. Well, and where you have people giving birth who would have chosen an abortion were it available. And who who people who don't go to those lengths to terminate the pregnancy but but give birth. And maybe even at some point in their life feel 
happy that that's the outcome, right? That they that they had the birth. You are going to have more wealth inequality. You are going mm-hmm. to. I mean, if I were trying to design something that would exacerbate income inequality in the United States, that would deepen the divides that already exist about gender, about race, mm-hmm. about wealth inequality, about education, just our values, education. I couldn't design something more effective than the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade. Like, it feels like COVID to me. I thought all the time, if I were really trying to bring the United States to its knees, mm-hmm. I could not have created a more effective weapon than this virus. And layering this on top, and I say this, let me just put all my cards on the table. From a legal perspective, I think Roe versus Wade was wrongly decided. And I think we got a lot of bad Supreme Court law around Roe versus Wade. Now, wait, I think you should say more about that. Yeah. Because I think people are going to say wrongly decided and you, you're going to, they're going to think you mean it should have remained illegal. But the way they decided it, I think, and sort of speaking to that is important. I think that choosing to read a right to privacy that encompasses the right to an abortion into the 14th Amendment was, as Justice Alito discusses, just legislating from the bench. I think it was. It would make a lot more sense to me, and courts have firmly rejected this, but it would make a lot more sense to me to analyze this under the Equal Protection Clause Mm. and to say, here is a procedure that only affects women, and we are discriminating against women by intruding on this procedure in this way. So I think it was I think it was poorly decided. I think all of the attempts by courts to carve out what viability means, to carve out limitations around this right have been badly done. I think it probably would have been better for us to have federal legislation around this or state legislation around it. I don't think and this is a shift in my personal understanding of things. I don't think it makes a lot of sense for your rights to vary by state around something this fundamental. So I I think ideally the United States Congress would have decided this, right? At the same time, and this is not just because of how I feel about precedent, because I I think it's true uh, that the precedent only means what what we all want it to mean situation to situation. So so I'm not talking about this from legal analysis now as much as uh, pragmatically. I also think the Affordable Care Act uh, exceeded Congress's constitutional authority. And if I had been in Congress in, what was it, 2017, when Republicans were trying to repeal it, I would have voted against that. Because a thread of the law that makes the most sense to me is this idea of detrimental reliance, that a thing happens and everybody relies on it. And so you can't just change the thing after everyone has relied on it. And that's how I feel about Roe versus Wade. I could critique that opinion all day, but we have very detrimentally relied on it for so long in this country that I think to decide, you know what, that was a mistake. We're going to change it. We're just going to reverse it now and let the chips fall. And Alito says several times that's how they feel about it. He's, he acknowledges we don't doubt that there will be a lot of fallout, but that's not really our business. Ugh. 
that's gross and that's not okay. And that's why I was so proud when Congress didn't repeal the Affordable Care Act, because there were people who voted to keep the Affordable Care Act in place, even though they opposed it the first time, because they understood this. We did it. And we've built things around it and we've created expectations around it. And you cannot just carelessly come in and flip a switch and let the chips fall. That's not how we responsibly govern. There's no ethic of care around that. So that's how I feel. I think they got it wrong the first time. I think there were much better ways to do it. But we don't just get to rewrite history this way. I think it's so irresponsible. Well, I mean, that's sort of why we have precedent. (laughs) In theory. Um, We just don't use it that way, you know? Well, and I just think, I I mean, I guess my only, my struggle with the codifying abortion is what's to just stop them from the next Republican majority to rolling in and repealing it? Like, it's hard to repeal laws, but it ain't impossible, especially if it's politically popular with your base. And then what do we do? Then we're just, we're in the back, back in the same position. They codify it. They roll it back. They, like, they chip away. They chip away. They get back. They come and do it again. Like, there's no stability there. That's why, I mean, if I hadn't, if I was waving my magic wand, we'd pass the ERA. We'd have, we'd have some assurances within the Constitution itself. And then we're not battling it out every cycle. Even that is, is tough, though, right? Because theoretically, we can change the Constitution and we can change our readings of the Constitution through the Supreme Court. A seismic shift in my thinking over the past few years is just realizing that in a free society, Everything is always on the table to some extent and that we might be better off if we treat it that way. I think it is that that desperation for stability, which I am like the most guilty of that desperation for stability has has resulted in a lot of complacency and a lot of neglect. And specifically around this issue, I mean, I was listening to an abortion activist on a podcast this morning and she was saying we need to approach this like our opponents do. We need Democrats need to be single issue voters around abortion because that's what Republicans have done and it's worked. And I hear that and everything in my body hates it, right? There's so much about that that I hate. And I also don't have a great argument. If this is the playing field, it is true. I know lots of single issue voters on abortion from a pro-life perspective. And I worry about a free society that just becomes a battle of this versus that to the death. And then what? But I also recognize that everything is kind of always on the table, even if it's in the Constitution, even if we have a Supreme Court decision, even if it's codified. It's it's always on the table. And that's part of the price of democracy. I don't I have a problem with single issue voting. I don't have to debate which one. I think it's always problematic. So that would be my beef with that statement. And I don't have to prove my devotion to the cause. I worked at Planned Parenthood. So I feel a lot of like fluidity around like, I don't have to prove how much I care about this to you. I actually feel on the politics of it, like that's where we're going to see some real upending in a way that I I don't even know we'll see as much around the like the actual physical impact in states. Again, it it was always dang near impossible to get an abortion in Mississippi. Now it's going to be completely impossible to get an abortion in Mississippi. Although there were people still that that one clinic out there dedicating themselves but politically, when you've been using this as that fuel for that single issue for decades, now we're talking about different ground. Now we're actually walking in a new direction. And I don't really know what that means. I honestly don't. I don't, I don't anticipate a day ever 
where the Democratic Party ha- ha- is like a single fueled by a single issue. Where there's this, this, the fundamental structure and chemistry of the Democratic Party to me is so different from the Republican Party when it comes to stuff like this that I don't see that in our future. But that doesn't mean it's not important to people. I'm, I'm, but like you said in our morning news brief, I'm almost more interested in how this upends the political structure of the pro-life movement. What are you guys going to do now? Like you did it. What are you going to do now? I'll never forget one time watching a documentary, and it was pro-life Mississippi, and it was this woman who was the head of pro-life Mississippi, and she said, "You know, we're we're reaching that day when we'll see an end to abortion." And I thought, "How clueless do you have to be?" to think that is available to you. Abortion has existed since the beginning of human history, and it will exist until the end of human history. And I don't know a lot of things for sure, but I know that for sure. And so, like, I don't know. Like, will that will they just pivot and they'll pivot to medical abortion and states that are provided? And, like, are they really just going to, in the march of folly, try to pursue this imagined scenario when no one ever has an abortion? Maybe. Maybe that's just what will happen. I don't know. I mean, I think the pivot has already started. Mm. I think it's the pharmaceutical side. I think it's the travel side. I'm I'm yeah. really concerned about what a United States of America looks like if a state puts a law on its books that our Supreme Court says is constitutional that that criminalizes receiving an out of state abortion. What does that mean? What are we as a country? Yeah. Are we a country? Not united. No. I think the pivot to you know, and we're already here, but but really focusing on gender roles and mm-hmm. gender identity. I, I don't blame uh, anyone in the LGBTQ community who is saying, like, they're coming for us next. Yeah. Because I think that the trail is there and that it that it makes a lot of sense. And we, we do have a lot built on that idea of an, of an implied right of privacy. And listen, I think we have Alice, an implied yeah, right of privacy. Like I do us, believe we have that. <laughs> that is us. That yeah. is Everybody, if you think yeah. you live your life in America in 2022 and aren't in some way or someplace resting on a right to privacy, you've lost it. Yeah. And like, and- we're not great at it. There are lots of places where privacy is being violated, but there are lots of places you're standing on that right and you should be concerned if it's at risk. I think we like undoubtedly have that. And that, again, a sense of complacency has prevented us from doing a better job stating that more explicitly and updating Mm -hmm. it. When I read Alito's opinion, which spends pages and pages talking about quickening and the, the history of how we've understood pregnancy and how pregnancy was understood at the time the Constitution was written, I thought, what does Justice Alito believe the Constitution has to say about artificial intelligence, about data privacy, mm-hmm. about the rights that we have vis-a-vis tech companies using our images, about genetic editing. I mean, there's so much that the Constitution at the time of its writing could not anticipate. Does he believe we have no rights around those things until we enumerate them through some kind of constitutional amendment process? We must continue to think about what we want America to mean in a new landscape. And if your understanding is that we have only contemplated and therefore we only recognize the rights granted at the time of the founding, then we're we're lost. That's not going to work. In my sort of most despondent moment, I just have to remind myself that this is fundamentally shifted things. 
not fundamentally changed every single thing. Like I said, I think this will just accelerate a lot of trends we were already experiencing. But like this is a new frontier if this decision comes down the way it has. And that's not always bad. A new frontier offers possibility. And like, you know, I don't want to be, you know, toxic positivity over here, overly optimistic. I think I've made some statements throughout this conversation that really clearly establishes I do not feel that way. But this was and has always been precarious. And I don't think that we should assume that there could be a future opened up by the by maybe the overturning of Roe v. Wade that gets us to a place where again we're not we haven't solved it we're not state we're not static but that there is less precarity for women i don't think that's going to be next year or 5 years or 10 years from now but it's definitely always my goal like i'm not i've you know i've sort of like existed in this space for too long to think we're going to fix it. And so I think it's always that analogy of like, we're just trying to turn the ship, you know, and they're not turning the ship a couple degrees. They're turning it a whole 180. And so it's going to upend a lot of things. And chaos is an opportunity for change. So that's what I'm just trying to to keep center of mind. What I really appreciate about that, Sarah, is that I think implicit in what you just said is this idea of if this is hurting for you, which it is for so many people. And listen, so many people, one in four women have had an abortion. Mm, And think about the men on the other side of that equation. You're not in a place in public without running into someone who is deeply personally affected. You don't go to Kroger without browsing next to someone who has had an abortion. Okay, so it's it is already here among us all the time. We've just kept it secret, which has been really harmful as well, right? Mm-hmm. So I think what you're saying is if you are hurting because of this, if you are wrestling with that sense of like, oh, my God, my daughter is not going to have this option that's been available to me. How can that be? Can you make room for the possibility of something that is more solid in the future? of something coming from this that creates more rights. And I hope that if you are a person who has advocated for this for so long and who is celebrating that that idea of fewer abortions in America, which I, again, I don't think that's going to be the reality, but if that's your headspace, I hope that you too can make room for this is not going to be a utopia. Mm-hmm. And there is going to be fallout from this that has not been anticipated And there are going to be needs created by this that my energy is going to be uh, useful to if I am serious about a world where we have more happy families like I envision when I tell people about this issue. Right. So I I hope everybody can make a little bit of room around what we're feeling for other possibilities in time. It's okay to have reactions and days where you can't find that space. But. That is my goal, to keep finding more room for for more around this, because I don't want to stay stuck in sort of, I'm pro-life and you're pro-choice and we just have to agree to disagree. That's off the table. That's just not, we can't be there anymore. Well, I mean, there's a perfect example in Texas. I read an article in Slate where the abortion, several of the abortion clinics in Texas were saying, women who might not have had an abortion feel rushed 
into the decision due to this law. And so I think that's often just an like a scenario that is not even mentioned that that pro life legislative changes because we're all going to be debating those a lot, right? Pro life legislative changes often can increase abortions and <laughs> in individual decision making, right? Like it's not when you look at the Guttmacher Institute statistics and they're like they've decreased. I mean, that's that's not the statistic does not cane the complexity of some people might have had one when they didn't want one because they felt forced into someone else's timeline. So, I mean, that again, that's the that is what's happening here that we all want to sum up neatly with a bow or one like imagined scenario when, again, if it's one in four women. Imagine the complexity that contains. Yeah. How much time do you need to make the most consequential decision of your life? Right. Right. As if there's one answer to that question. Yeah. When we think about the needs that are created around supporting mothers, families uh, in the United States, we are going to bring a guest in who has created the Marshall Plan for Moms to speak to those needs. And we hope you enjoy this conversation with Reshma Saljani. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. We are so thrilled to have Reshma Saljani with us. You are, you have an extensive resume. Like us, former lawyer, you're an activist, founder of Girls Who Code and the Marshall Plan for Moms, which we're going to spend some time on today, the author of Pay Up, The Future of Women and Work and Why It's Different Than You Think. And I just want to start by asking you with all this experience that you have, lawyer, founder, entrepreneur, social activist, former candidate for office. You have clearly developed a perspective on motherhood and work. I would love to hear about the Marshall Plan for Moms and how your life experiences informed this area of focus for you. Yeah, well, I mean, I started the pandemic in 2020 with uh, Girls Who Code had a Super Bowl ad. I was going to teach more girls than I ever taught. I was having my second son, and I was going to take my leave, spend some time with my family, do date night with my husband, and then the pandemic hit. And I found myself having to take care of a three-week-old, homeschool a, new, you know, homeschool a kindergartner, and save my nonprofit from being shut down. And most of the women on my leadership team were all working moms, and we were barely making it. Mm. And then when schools closed that September, that was it, right? Because I think for two reasons. One, that a decision like that could be made that so greatly affected our lives, and we were not even consulted. Mm. And second, seeing the millions and millions of women that were pushed out of the workforce. You know, when we started the pandemic, 51% of the labor force was female. We were flying our feminist flags high. And then this pandemic hit and we had to supplement essentially, you know, our paid labor for unpaid labor. And it was the, the most formidable hit, you know, to women's economic participation that we've seen in this country in a long time. Mm. What I really appreciate is that it doesn't seem to be only informed by your life experience that the Marshall Plan for Mom tries to really speak to a broad array, which, you know, from low-income moms that I love the the piece of the Marshall Plan that speaks to retraining, Yep. but the pieces that are universal up and down the income ladder, like paid leave and, you know, the policy proposals, but also the sense of mom guilt. Yep. That yep. is just crushing women with lots of resources and with no resources. I mean, that's the, the thing, right? This, that's why I say this opportunity. I mean, essentially, you know, over 40 million of us are having collectively a common experience to different degrees. Mm. You know, my mother was a political refugee 
And I think about her in this moment. And, you know, back then when I was growing up, she couldn't afford the $50 a week for childcare. And so my sister and I were latchkey kids. Mm Mm-hmm. And the unconscionable choices that so many women have to make today, I'm going to talk about in my book, a woman who was arrested and she works at a pizza parlor. She left her kids at home alone because she didn't have a choice. And she was arrested for neglect. So, you know, what women need in this country in many ways is very basic. And it's what other women have in other countries. One, it's like, we need paid leave. We don't, Mm -hmm. vast majority of women go back to work 10 days after having a baby. That's shameful. You know, we need affordable childcare. Most Americans pay more for their childcare than they pay for their mortgage. It is the largest cost center for families. It is the driver and the decision maker of economic decisions in a household, you know, and it doesn't have to be that way, meaning like we can live in a society where the government or the private sector provides some support because it is a must have in order to work. You know, we're, we, so many women whose jobs were automated, you know, because of the pandemic lost them. And they're the sole breadwinner in their families. You know, three out of 10 American families are run by a single mom. Mm. So what's the plan to retrain all them? And and so, and I think we have to really think about school in a different way because we learn that school clo- schools and safety of schools being open is a critical thing for many, 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 many families. Mm-hmm. So I think that this pandemic exposed was already there. But the reality is, is far too many of us have been, you know, teetering, especially low-income women, especially working-class women, especially women of color, you know, have been having to basically, they they have to work, period. Yep. And they got to put food on the table. And and as a nation, we need their work. It's like, it's, it's, it's critical to this con- country's functioning. And so what are we going to do to support them? You mentioned COVID and its effects on everyone. I think it's been interesting because in some ways COVID has been so disruptive. And I think we have had a a real clarity about like, here are challenges in our society that we can all see and that are affecting us every day. And at the same time, because of that disruption and because of just the, the stress of the whole thing, uh, there's a real sense of scarcity at work right now. So I'm wondering, as you're out there talking about this, what's the mood? How How are these ideas being received? Well, I think people are like, hell yeah, but they're exhausted. Mm-hmm. You know, 51% of moms are anxious and depressed. We actually have an, a, an epidemic, a mental health epidemic of, of moms. And here's the thing, moms don't break, mm-hmm. right? When's the last time before the pandemic you were just like, you you know, when we started to call, normally the people would be like, how are you? I'm like, I'm great. Even though I wasn't, or I slept two hours because, you know, I'm like feeding my baby. Now we've kind of gotten used to being like, how are you doing? I'm exhausted. Mm. But now it's like every mom I know, every working mom I know is just done and helpless and hopeless. And that's how I think people feel right now is just utterly exhausted because not only have we been burning it at two ends and haven't gotten a break because all of that work, the homeschooling, the caretaking, the grocery shopping, the food buying, the just the worry you know, the worry about this, is there another variant? What am I going to do? Where's the mask? All of that sits with us. And so we haven't gotten a second to do any self-care and to just take a beat and to sleep. So I think that people are really exhausted. I think they, and so part of what I try to say when I, I think they know what I'm saying is, is, is gospel is true. Now, part of it though, I think sometimes women are like, is that a fantasy? Like we're so removed 
that we could live in a society that we could actually get help? Even though what I'm talking about is not a fantasy. They do that in France, Canada, UK. I mean, every even in India now, right? They're providing parental income when you have a child and support. But here it still feels like this is my life. Mm. This is just the way it is if you choose to have a mom, which is why so many women are choosing not to be moms. Mm-hmm. Right? Because they look at us and they're like, yeah, yeah, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. And that's devastating, right? Because I say to young women, don't, you know, you choose, but don't let them take your choice away from you. Well, what feels so true to me and what I've really tried to articulate, and I think, you know, campaigns like the Marshall Plan for Moms, and I, I mean, I love your really, really great ad that's sort of like a pharmaceutical ad about yeah. mom guilt. We'll put the link in the show notes. It's so great because what, I, what I've really tried to articulate in my conversations when we get in this hopeless spiral of childcare and no choices and giving up work is to say often in my like individual conversations, it is not like this everywhere. We are doing this to ourselves. Like it is not your failing. It is not where you live. It is not the choices you made. Women all over the world do not face this ridiculous individual calculus where it's like you decide to have kids and it's like, you're on your own. Hope you can slap something together. Good Good luck. Good luck. Best of luck to you. And I wonder, though, how you deal with, I think there's two real complicating factors in the fact that our system sucks and we need real policy changes, which is one, parenthood, for the most part, is a temporary gig that like hands-on, littles, finding childcare, dealing with illness because you have to be the one at home, like that, and for the most part it's a temporary situation. So I think there's this drive to just like get through it. I'm just going to get through this and then I don't have to worry about it anymore. And I think that exhaustion and hopelessness because exhausted hopelessness is not a great place to create change. So how do you, when we're in this position and there's a sense of like, just survive it, how do you motivate people to pay attention and to get involved and to look at these policy changes that might come too late for them, but could affect other women and other families. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to talk about it in terms of the entire package because I think it's little ones today and it's your parents tomorrow. Word. Right. And that's where a lot mm-hmm. of people are now stressed, you know, talking about is like, I I need time off of work because I got to go take care of my father because he has Parkinson's. I know it's not alliterative, but it's like Marshall Plan for caregivers. <laughs> yeah, but it's, you know, it's it's the whole point of the matter is, is like, I think, I think we're, but I think actually people are more potentially sympathetic to parents zero to 10 than they are. Mm-hmm. And, but I think we did build that value system. And, and part of it is just really about giving women control over their schedules. That's it. That's all we're talking about, right? We're, we're talking about just give me control. Like, l- trust me to be an adult yeah. and, 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 and to do my job and to tell you, well, I, I got to go because I got to go take my kid and, and, and not judge me or not penalize me or not take something away from me because of that. So, you know, I think the second, so that, so that I think is just, we have to connect it to a larger, you know, we got to bring childless women and men in on us. We got to bring men. And and it's funny. People always say to me, well, how do you, you know, it's really, how do you convince the men? I'm like, no, no, no. The men are with me. The men are with the, pro- this is not about the men, right? Meaning like, especially over the, in the pandemic, when I think men started taking more time caring for their kids, started taking their kids to school, started basically taking them aside. They're like, I, I like this. Mm-hmm. I don't want to commute two hours a day to see my kid for 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. 
And so I don't think this is just, and so I think we got to talk about it in a, in a, how do we want to live? Mm. As you say that, I would love to hear how you settled on the name, the Marshall plan for moms. Well, it's, it felt like, I mean, I'm a history nerd, so it felt like World War II bombed out cities and we needed to, we needed to literally rebuild this from the ground up. Like we needed to just rethink this. And I actually didn't think it would catch on. I thought it would just be like me. But it really, like, it's like when I named Girls Who Code, people like, it caught on. It, it, this is the same. It was shocking to me. Well, you just get it immediately. You hear it and you're like, yeah, yes. yeah, okay. Yep. Now, sho- shockingly, the controversial thing in the beginning was moms. People like, mm. why moms? What about the dads? You know, and I was like, it's almost like, it's it's wild how in some circles, this identity is not something you want to grab onto. Mm. But for me, I have a very emotional connection to being a mom. It's all I ever wanted to be. It's my favorite title. It's mm. the thing that's most important to me. It's the thing I fought for. And so, and I think similar to girls who code, people say, well, what about all the kids? Well, no, 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 no. The, the gender gap in tech is about a gender gap in tech. Mm-hmm. Similar here, two-thirds of caretaking work are done by moms. So it's not about the caretaking and it's sometimes it's not about the gender, but it's about the motherhood. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to your point about like, why do we, why is motherhood so controversial? Why do we feel like we don't want to give us nice things? Why is that so hard for us to like, you know what I mean? Convince people that we should not go back to work 10 days after having a baby. I mean, so I, I think really getting deep into that and, you know, I get to a lot of arguments you know, weekly with different, you know, different and not even people who you think you would argue with, right? Not, it's not with men, actually. It's with sometimes childless women. Mm. It's sometimes with moms who've already had, you know, whose kids are older now. It's, and so we got to resolve these feelings amongst us. And, you know, cause we do have a lot of, I mean, go on an airline and have a screaming child and the looks you get, mm-hmm. like the fact that most of the time we are apologizing for our motherhood. Sorry, mm-hmm. my kid didn't mean to make it. Sorry, my kid just interrupted him. Sorry, I got to leave this meeting. Sorry, I got, you, you know, it's all, it's never, because we don't feel like we get grace. Right. Well, it's the scarcity too. It's the scarcity of the situation. Everybody feels that that economic precarity and that scarcity. And so everybody's fighting for their tiny little piece of the pie. Can I take that airline example and blow it out a little bit? Because I think about that all the time when I travel. I have this instinct. I want to go help. Right. My kids are older now. I've been through the screaming on an airplane phase. I feel like I kind of know what to do in that situation, you know, and it always feels wrong to help. Like like an offer of help would be a criticism because we have such a self-sacrificial, individualistic ethos around parenting. And I wonder whether those individual examples might shift in the wake of policy that shifts in this area. I love you. I, so I wrote a whole failure Friday about this because I was that person where I'll have, you know, because oftentimes my husband and I travel, like I'll travel with the kids and take them to go see my parents in Chicago. So it's me, the two-year-old baby, the seven-year-old, 50 bags and just exhaustion, right? And normally it's somebody will come up and they'll be like, hey, can I, can I, can I put that diaper bag up there on the, up there for you in the overhead? And I'm like, no, I got it. Lately, I'm like, yes, please. Thank you. And it has felt so liberating and it's felt very political. Like, yes, you should be asking moms everywhere 
if they need help or like what you can do. Like your knee jerk reaction should not be to have attitude because a mom's taking paternity leave and you got to do some of her work. You should be like, great. Because one day that might be you in a different form. So I think you're right. I think we as moms, our form of activism is to say, yes, please. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, as we move into how to generate support and how to, to think of this activism, let me share the story on a flight from Utah to back to my home with my three kids and my husband. There was a baby who was displeased. The baby did not want to be on the plane. The baby had not wanted to be on the plane a lot of the plane ride. And as the the parents were standing up, there was like this wave of, because it, it was the unloading that the baby was really not here for. And about two row, two to three rows in front of them, there was just this collective sense of everybody stay seated and let them off first. And we did. We were like, hey, we're all going to, we're we're good. You go. And they were like, you sure? We're like, yes. Yeah, go. You need it. We've been where you've been. Yeah. And there was just this collective sense of like, hey, we got you. Go. We can wait. You go ahead. Um, and I thought, oh, man, if I could just bottle this and spread it out around the, cr- the country. It's true. And it's funny. I mean, I wonder, I don't know if you all have a thought on this. Like, was it worse before the pandemic or is it better now? Sometimes it feels worse now. It just depends. When I travel, like I'm always waiting for that moment you see all over TikTok where somebody loses it. But truly, I, I witness a lot more kindness. People going out of their ways to thank the flight attendants, going out of their ways to like help each other and, and stay calm. It's just the when people explode, it is so much more intense yeah. than it used to be. I think that's so when someone point. is unkind, it is accelerated. Although I think there is a greater blanket of helpfulness and, ex- and kindness it's just that those explosions are so intense that that's all it just it obliterates any other experience or memory. You're right. I think that's right. I don't, that's why I tell moms right now, you know, with pay up my book, it's like you got leverage. There's a lot of there's millions of open jobs right now. People have kind of seen our mess and two jobs for every worker. That was the headline are, this right. morning. Yeah, and that's right. And so we have we have it's a seller's market. Mm. So now's the time to be like, yes, I would love this opportunity. What's your childcare benefits? What's mm-hmm. your pay leave program? Hey, I might need Thursdays and Fridays to be able to work remotely. You know, so ask for what you want. And it's interesting. Young women have been doing this. Childless women have been doing this. And that's why in 22 states, they've increased, their salaries have surpassed men for the first mm-hmm. time. So it's showing you that people who have been not actually equitably treated in the workforce and who are using this moment to find leverage, it's happening for them. So how do we go beyond those individual actions? How do we generate support for the Marshall Plan of Moms? How do we come together and get some of this systemic policy change? Well, I think the first thing is, I do think the individual piece of, I think everyone listening right now, I want you to advocate for one thing for yourself mm. and, and see the impact of that on your life and think about what you can do in your workforce. What a beautiful Mother's Day gift. <sighs> yeah. Advocate for one thing for yourself. And, and let's have a radically different conversation. I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book is like, I feel like I was tricked into thinking that like I was the problem, that mm-hmm. only if I leaned in harder or if yep. I grew up, lost my way to the top or color coded my calendar or find a mentor, well, then I too could get to equality. And the reality is we have to stop trying to fix the woman and fix the structure. And the mm. structure is broken. So that's the second piece. We as moms are really good at advocating for our kids. You know, schools were closed. We were out there, right? You know, if against, you know, for gun reform, climate change, we're out there, but we don't fight for ourselves. And really, when you think about what are the structural changes to make yourself be able to, you know, be a, have a kid and a job, 
it is really these five things, you know, it's really closing the motherhood penalty, getting subsidized childcare, getting paid leave, you know, fighting for flexibility and, you know, focusing on our mental health and retraining if we need it. So like my point is, is like, we know what we need and we know what the generations after us need, what our daughters need, our nieces need, our neighbors need. And so let's go fight for that. And I know people are exhausted. So take a beat, give yourself grace. You know what I mean? But then start railing with your coworkers to to say, what are our paid leave policies here at our workplace? What are our, what do our, you know, hey, you're, you're paying to freeze my, egg, you know, let me freeze my eggs. Maybe you should be paying for my childcare, you know? Mm. So, and the book, my book pay up really lays it out. It's like a, here's what you should do if you're an employer. Here's what you should do if an employee. And so we got to start building that muscle and practicing how to do, because I think, and I know it's a podcast about politics, I think part of when you start understanding how to advocate for yourself in, in your workplace, then you start advocating for yourself in the political arena. Yeah. Yep. But you've so got it's to a political act. It's, it's a, a political, political act. act. But it's Absolutely. one that's going to get change your life quicker. Mm. Well, I agree with Sarah. What a perfect gift for Mother's Day to start advocating for yourself in all of those spheres. We thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for s- spending some time with us. Thank you. Thank you all. Keep fighting. I appreciate everything that you're doing to lift up women and women's voices. Thank you you so much. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you 
want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Thank you so much for Reshma for sharing your vision with us. Sarah, um, because we contain multitudes outside of politics, we're just going to go in a, in a new direction here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. At the same time as we were learning about the Supreme Court's leak, we were also learning about Kim Kardashian wearing Mar- Marilyn Monroe's dress, the actual dress, not a tribute to the dress, but the dress that she sang to President Kennedy in to the Met Gala. And you have some thoughts about this. I thought it was an homage. Like, I just was perusing the Met red carpet i don't it's it's in a new direction i do not enjoy i kind of appreciate it and it was like a niche thing only fashion people knew about and now it's just like one more red carpet all these events are fe- they're, they're feeling a little gross these days and so we, a lot of my friends and i were just like what's this what's happening and then of course the decision is leaked and everybody's like end of empire vibes here like what are we doing <laughs> What's going on? Also, who chose Gilded Glamour? I guess it was Blake Lively. And I, it, what a terrible choice. What a terrible, terrible choice for right now. I, even if it wasn't precisely the Gilded Age, like, come on. Really? That's it Gilded? Gilded? Do you understand what Gilded means? That underneath the gold is not gold? Like, it's fine. It's bad. It's bad. But then I thought her dress was just an homage. And then when I heard it was the actual dress, I was like, okay, well, now this is the fullest manifestation of what has gone wrong here, that she was just, what, rich and famous enough to wear a priceless piece of history and damage it under any scenario. She's damaged it. It has been stressed by being put on, by the oils on her body, by the fittings, like she didn't alter it, but who cares? But also, like, why does Ripley's believe it or not have it just because they paid the most? Like, that should be in the Smithsonian. I hope the controversy is extensive enough. They're like, sorry, guys, we'll just give it to the Smithsonian because what a disaster. What a disaster. And then you add to the what do we want to do with historic artifacts? <laughs> the fact that she publicly went on this crash diet to make the dress mm. fit. And I just, that is not a message that the world needs right now. I don't understand. No. I keep thinking we're sort of like done with a thing, or at least we've recognized the the boundaries around the thing. And then somebody just comes in and says, nope, I reject all of that. I'm going to do my own thing anyway. I'm And and with, with body issues, I'm just, I'm really surprised that she shared 
that she worked really hard to lose a huge amount of weight in a very short time. I mean, she does on a shapewear company. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't find shapewear as offensive as the I mean, I damage to your body. I'm just saying, like, I don't know. It's just it it makes me sad to have that message out there that like that's cool to just stress your body in that way to fit into a dress. It makes me really sad. I mean, if I'm giving Grace, I bet she saw it as like a, I mean, it is, because it is. It's the performance. She wasn't just going to a party. The Met Gala is a performance, and she is a public figure, and this was a part of her performance. You know, in the same way, I don't—it does not bother me when actors or actresses manipulate their bodies for roles. Because it's not just a party. It is different. I just don't know if we need it anymore. (laughs) Because, I mean, the the stated objective is, like, to raise money. Well, everybody spent more on— Their performances. Their performances than they raised— for, you know, so it's just kind of silly. And I'm not mad at, like, I don't want to do away with fashion. I love fashion. I think it's incredibly important because I love art. And I think fashion is art. In the same way, I think that we have the quilt show in my hometown. And the quilts hanging the wall do not keep you warm. They are art. So I'm not, it's not that component of it. It's just, it's it's the celebrity. It's because it's a performance. It's not a, it used to be more a performance of fashion. And now it feels more a performance of celebrity. Which we don't need. Like, we got, we're good. Like, we're good, right? We have enough of that. I feel the same way about the White House Correspondents Association dinner. Mm. It is a performance of celebrity, not of journalism. Everything, you know, what is not a performance of celebrity right now? And I think we just need to dial that way, way back because it's not serving us well. It's just, it's it's a performance of a dated understanding of celebrity. I don't have trouble with celebrity. I think celebrities are just our Greek myths. It's how we're working out our stuff. We're working out our views and our morality and our ethics and our values. And I have no beef with that. But some of these, there, it's a, it's a more like big movie. When we did, when not every celebrity had an Instagram that we knew everything they were doing all the time. I kind of want to be like Kimmy. Listen, come over here with me. What were you? What were you doing? What was the point? If we, like, if you were going to come out and this was going to be a, like, I kind of liked it when she was covered with black. You couldn't see her face. I thought that was kind of cool. And I, c- I could got the position. But, like, if you're going to do this performance of Marilyn in this dress, but also show us on your reality show <laughs> the fitting and the dying and talk to us about how you crash died to get, like, do you see what I'm saying? Like, we, we can't have it both ways. Like, these events are based on an understanding of celebrity that was, highly filtered not that they're not still filtered but you know what i mean like where they weren't on instagram sharing their business and and you know going to the red table and on and on and on so like that to me is like where there's a mismatch here i still think it's interesting i still think there's interesting aspects of celebrity and i also don't think it's going anywhere it's just the this particular i I just it's like jump the shark you know what i mean it's hard to watch and it's hard to have them post-covid it's hard to have them without layers and layers of discussion about what's going on. And you know what's really frustrating about this this Kim Kardashian thing is like, I do wish her the best. I really yeah, I don't, do. I've got no beef with her. No I beef. especially hope that she and Pete Davidson are just what mm-hmm. the other one need. I really, yes. I really, really wish them all the best. I spend all my time wishing good things for Pete Davidson. I am so hardcore. I just want him to be happy is all I want in my life. I'm just especially sad about the crash diet part of this because she is so aware of the influence that her decisions about her body has. 
she's, it might not be fair, but she has capitalized on it and she understands it very, very well. And this is just not what the world needed, especially when I think everyone would have loved it if they had made a replica of the dress. Just a replica? Yeah. Why did it? I'm not mad at her. <laughs> it's I, a, beauty, I it's a fun un- idea. Like, just I'm do a replica of the totally dress. totally <laughs> uninterested in beating up on Kim Kardashian. Yeah. I think there is so much sexism when people make her a punching bag. Um, so I don't want to do that. I'm not interested in that. I just think somebody should have told her no. I'm mad at that person. I'm mad at the person that said, it's a cool idea. Let's make a replica. No. Because, yeah, I think she's been through a lot. I'm still, like, real worried about her, about that arms break-in situation in Paris. I still think about that. I'm, I'm really, I'm not interested in beating up her. I think that's lazy because, boy, how unique could you be to beat up on a Kardashian publicly? Well, I'm sure that you'll have lots of thoughts about Kim Kardashian. And we will oh, look forward you. to hearing them along with your thoughts on everything else. You can always email us at hello at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. We read every message. We take your feedback uh, into our own thoughts and it makes us better. So we appreciate that. Please do leave us a review for Now What? How to Move Forward When We're Divided About Basically Everything. If you have read it and enjoyed it, thank you again for all of your support. We'll be back in your ears on Tuesday. Until then, have the best weekend available to you. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Penton is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Linda Daniel. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. The Creeps! Lori Ladau. Lily McClure. Emily Neasley. The Pettins! Tawny Peterson. Tracy Putoff. Sarah Ralph. Jeremy Sequoia. Katie Steigers. Karen True. Annika Uveline. Nick and Elisa Valelli. Catherine Vollmer. Amy Whited. Jeff Davis. Melinda Johnston. Ashley Thompson. Michelle Wood. Joshua Allen. Morgan McHugh. Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.